Well, good morning. Good to see you on this uh, wonderful, beautiful Sunday morning. Sometimes I get asked, when did you first know that you were called into full, full-time vocational ministry? Now, of course, it's not always asked exactly just like that, but I know what people mean. It happened very clearly on a youth retreat when I was 16 years of age and between my sophomore and junior year of high school. And though I knew I was called and I surrendered to that calling, more clarity and vision happened over time. Um, I knew I was called, but I said to the Lord, I will serve you, but I do not want to be a senior pastor. <laughs> And other people saw that calling on my life prior to that retreat, and of course afterwards as well. There were many confirmations through God's people. It doesn't happen the same for everyone. The clarity and vision happen uh, quickly for some and over time for others. A period of time from short to long can elapse between feeling called and being recognized. There is no cookie-cutter experience. In Jesus' case, we know that his vocation had been dramatically confirmed at his baptism, and we talk about that often, and it's the same is true for each one of us at our baptism. Luke made it clear that for Jesus, it even stretched way back beyond that, so that already at the age of 12, he was exploring not whether he had such a calling so much, but what it might mean. Mary and Joseph went looking for the boy Jesus, and after three days, three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And the scripture tells us, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The question of Jesus' identity is central in Luke's gospel and in the life of the church. Twice before, in Luke chapter 8, verse 25, and chapter 9, verse 9, Luke has posed the question, who is Jesus? And neither time was an answer given. And now the disciples have returned from their mission and participated in the feeding of the, uh, the multitudes, and Jesus asks them the question. He first wants to know what the crowds are saying. In other words, what is the word on the street? It is a non-threatening inquiry that all the disciples could answer easily. And Jesus was known as a prophet, and they understood him through the lens of Elijah and John the Baptist and even others. And, and Jesus was more than that. Prophet he certainly was, but he was not simply pointing to God's kingdom some way off in the future. He was causing it to appear before people's eyes and was setting in motion the events through which it would become firmly established. Remember he said the kingdom of God is among you. It's in with arm's reach. And he even says when demons are cast out, you'll know the kingdom of God has come. 
So though Jesus wasn't doing everything that they had expected a Messiah to do, for example, to come as a military leader to set them free from Roman occupation, but the combination of authority and power and wisdom and fulfillment of the scriptures that they had seen in him was too powerful to mean anything else. Something was different about Jesus Christ. And then Jesus changes the question, which is really the heart of the matter and the heart of the sermon. Who do you say that I am? We don't know exactly what happened, but I am assuming some things. Now, I don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. But I was thinking about what, when, when Jesus asked that question, what were the disciples thinking? Perhaps some looked down and were kicking, kicking pebbles with their sandals and others coughed uncomfortably. And others were observing in the sky cloud formations. And of course the leader, Peter, spoke up and he says, You're the Messiah of God, God's anointed King, the Son of God. In other words, the disciples responded as many in our churches would today, standing by silently waiting for someone else and a leader perhaps to answer the question. So what kind of Messiah is he? Jesus was not the conquering warrior who would come to battle the Romans, but he was a suffering servant. With our culture being so obsessed with success and prefer to hear about Jesus' victory over sin and death that encounter his uh, suffering on the cross. How many people who are sitting in our churches move from Hosanna on Palm Sunday to Alleluia on Easter without ever encountering Good Friday's cry of abandonment? And especially at All Saints when we have worship services all through Holy Week in order to walk with Jesus, especially on that Holy Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And it's sad to miss walking with Jesus in the formational events during these essential days. Yet it is precisely the way of the cross, the way of life, that Jesus invites all of us to travel. I realize it's hard. Our schedules are busy in Southern California. Our, our schedules are beyond controllable. We're tired. There's traffic. Some people work. I get that. Um, but I would encourage you. I, I, I'm talking about on those evenings. And, um, and so when, if you're at work, there's not much you could do about that. Uh, I understand that some people here travel long distances to come to worship with us. And I realize it might be inconvenient. But I would encourage you during Holy Week to inconvenience yourself. Because it's worth it. Jesus clearly tells that, them that anyone who wants to follow him, dark and dangerous times are ahead. The world is being turned upside down and anyone who wants to come through and be present when God's kingdom appears will have to be prepared to be turned upside down and inside out with it. Jesus didn't come with the message that if you followed him, we would have an easy life with everything happening exactly the way we would want it to happen. It was actually quite the reverse. To save your life, you will have to lose it. Jesus' swift movement from asking who they think he is to summoning them to follow him even to death it shows clearly enough that we cannot separate thinking from action in the Christian faith. As Jesus said earlier, it is no use saying, Lord, Lord, if you don't do what he says. 
Jesus' identity and vocation are tied so tightly together that if you want to have anything to do with him, you have to take the whole package or nothing at all. There are no half measures in the kingdom of God. That's why we follow King Jesus and his kingdom and as kingdom subjects, we fully submit and yield ourselves to him. And yes, we're going to mess things up. But we go to him and surrender to him, confessing and repenting of our sins in order to lead a new life. Jesus calls those who want to be his followers to take up their cross daily. And among the synoptic gospels, and synoptic um, is in reference to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is the only one that includes the word daily. It's a reminder that following the Lord is not just an emotional ascent made by a campfire at a long-ago youth group retreat or saying a prayer at a crusade for fire insurance so you can go to heaven when you die. It's so much more than that. Discipleship is a daily decision over a lifetime. Self-denial and cross-bearing are out of fashion in a therapeutic, me-centered, anything-goes culture. Yet this type of sacrifice is at the heart of the church's witness to the one who carried the cross, which is the way of life. As examples of those who lived cruciform lives, often we use people such as Dorothy Day and her ministry among the poor, or Mother Teresa and her care for the forgotten and the rejected in the slums, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his leadership of the confessing church, or Martin Luther King and his wit- Jr. and his witness throughout the civil rights struggle and others like that. Uh, we as Anglicans, we remember the great saints, and on those days we remember their life and we talk about that. We talk about the ways that they lived their lives in obedience to Jesus Christ. And then we ask the Lord that we might be like them in those areas that they were obedient to Jesus Christ. Yet it is not only the extraordinary who are called to bear the cross, but all of us are. Every follower of Jesus Christ. It includes daily decisions, doing what is right, being obedient, loving our neighbor, forgiving our enemy, giving the hungriest sandwich, letting one know we are thinking about them in great tribulation and that we are there for them when they are grieving and the list is endless those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for jesus sake will save it this is not a glorification of suffering for its own sake or self-mortification nor does it imply that suffering has a redemptive significance in itself The suffering that disciples endure is a reflection of the suffering of the Messiah. The cross, in a true sense, is a life-giving event rather than a life-denying act. It is ultimately an act of love for the sake of the people of the world, not an act of self-martyrdom. Thus, Reference to denying oneself does not mean giving up pleasures and comforts in itself, but rather living a cruciform life that seeks to uphold and affirm the values of God's kingdom. And as we've talked about before, when we choose to follow King Jesus in his way and in his ways that he lays out for us clearly, of course we're saying no to other things. But it's his kingdom that drives the way that we live our life. This is something worth noting. 
Matthew and Mark set Peter's confession in the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's the political and religious center north of Galilee. And this setting draws our attention to the conflict that Jesus' followers will have when they confess him as Lord over and against the political and religious leaders who do not. But Luke, however, is silent about the setting and instead emphasizes that the encounter comes in the context of Jesus' prayer life. If we look at verse 18, it says, Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them. And then, of course, the text goes on. So throughout the Gospel of Luke, the decisive events in the life of Jesus are set in the context of prayer. For example, at his baptism in chapter 3, in choosing the twelve in chapter 6, our passage today in chapter 9, at the transfiguration later on in chapter 9, in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 22. Intentional prayer informs and strengthens us as disciples. It forms us to the will of the Father. It enlarges our capacity for compassion and allows us to hear and respond to the cries of those in need. You know, uh, Deacon Jim and I were talking this morning about prayer as he was reflecting about what he and Cher are going through right now. And he says, you know, I'm learning more and more and being reminded of that prayer is not going to God as if he was some kind of um, a a, a wish-granting factory. You know, it's about praying and seeking God and forming our will to him as he makes himself known to us. Think about that. Reflect on that. Of course, there's a purpose in intercession and petition, reminding God of the scriptures and reminding of the promises in the word of God. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Remember, discipleship is not a matter of saying the right words, nor is it a singular act of heroic commitment or a one-time decision. Discipleship is an ongoing way of life. And as the scripture says, it's daily. The self-denial and discipleship is not primarily a matter of denying the self various things in life, but centrally on putting the cause of Jesus Christ ahead of all the desires of the flesh. In other words, God's kingdom influences all of our decisions, our daily living. In other words, if there is a denial of oneself, it is only because we are affirming and accepting King Jesus and His kingdom ways and not ours. The cross that we are to bear is more than a hardship that must be endured like a chronic illness. It is a decision to take up daily the life of self-giving love, even if it means the cost of one's life. I'd like to ask the graduates um, from high school to stand at this time, and I'd like to say a few words to you. If you're here, I know, I don't know how many is here this morning. All right, well, Vincent, right now it looks like you're the only, oh, there's Mario. Uh, We have a couple others as well. But I'd just like to speak to you for just a couple moments. You, you have graduated from high school and won an accomplishment. We celebrate with you. But as you go to college or university or you start immediately in the workforce or you're going away to some kind of internship, remember you're going to be tempted by many things. Remember the words of 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour, and he wants to devour you. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my brothers, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You will be tempted. Hebrews eleven twenty five reminds us of the fleeting pleasures of sin. Meaning that sin is fun for only a season. And I pray that if you are tempted and you fall into any season of fleeting sin, I pray that it's very short. Numbers 32, verse 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen that God has provided a way of an escape for every temptation that we face. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 and 6. And I'm going to read this one from the message. It's a paraphrase, as you know. It says, The world is unprincipled. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. The world doesn't fight fair. But we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation. But they are for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life that's shaped by Jesus Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. In other words, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because no matter what it is, Bible school, whether it's college, you're going to be faced with a lot of crap out there, especially in the universities in California. I'm sorry, can I say that? I'm being recorded. And you know what? But you're going to learn some good things as well. But remember, don't believe everything you hear. Luke 12, 29-32 says, What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax. Not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way He works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how He works. Both of you do. You've grown up in great Christian homes. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. Proverbs 13, 14, verse 12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is always the way of death. And our gospel this morning, and I'm going to end. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world but yet lose or forfeit their very self. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. And God's people said.